Welcome to the Ascension Roundtable Podcast, Episode 52, What Catholics Need to Know About Sexual Addiction and Porn. How much do you really know about sexual addiction and porn in today's age of technology? Counselor and therapist Mike Chaco starts today's show by explaining a new way to understand addiction. He shares his research about how prevalent sexual addiction really is amongst Christian communities, while, at the same time, encouraging us to maintain hope that Christ is bigger than whatever darkness we face in this realm. He ends by sharing methods that he has successfully used to help people experience Christ's healing in this area of their lives. Stay tuned. Hello and welcome to the podcast. My name is Marisa. I'm the producer of the Ascension Roundtable podcast, and we have with us today Tom McCabe on the line as a co-host. Hi, Tom. How are you? I'm doing well, doing well down here. I'm guessing it's probably a little warmer down here in Atlanta than it is up in Philly. I feel like we say that every single episode. (laughs) It seems, seems to be the case. I'm ready for the winter to be over. I'm like either snow or turn to spring. I don't like this in between stage. So that's where we are right now. Well, we have a great show lined up today. We have a guest today who has great insight and um, a lot to share with us about the area of um, healing in the realm of of sexual addiction and trauma, Um, an an issue that we know, unfortunately, many people in the pews are um, have experienced or they are are in relationship with somebody else who's experiencing these um, these things. And so we just think it's a, a topic that we we really need to address here on the podcast. Um, and we hope that that you'll get a lot out of today's conversation. So leading that conversation will be Tom and our guest is Mike Chacho. So welcome, Mike. Hey, thank you for having me. Hi, Tom. Mike, it's good to it's good to hear your voice again. So I just wanted to give our our listeners a little bit of your of your bio, Mike. Sure. Uh, Mike is a certified counselor with the Center for Healing in Kansas City, Missouri, and he's been a counselor since 2011. Uh, he works with a wide range of clients, including married couples, engaged couples, as well as individuals working through trauma, addiction, anxiety, depression, and and grief. Um, the last thing I would say is, you know, Mike has really, I mean, he has a passion for working with couples and families. Um, any, anybody addressing, um, you know, the, the, the desire for wholeness of the human person through a, through a Christian lens, right? Mm-hmm. And um, so fundamentally, I think that's, that's really your, your not, not just your sweet spot, but that, that's your, your vocation to help people find wholeness and healing through that Christian lens. So, Mike, uh, really, we wanted to just spend some time today with you um, understanding um, sexual addiction. Um, so I guess since this is really one of your areas of expertise, I guess maybe maybe first we should ask, I mean, what what makes something an addiction as opposed to just a want for something? Right. So someone saying, am I addicted? Am I not? So even before we talk about sexual addiction, how would you define addiction? Yeah, addiction in general. I like, I like staying simple here. And uh, Dr. Carnes talks about, um, he's one of the pioneers in sexual addiction, but you can also apply it to addiction in general, a pathological relationship with a mood altering substance or experience. So uh, just to 
bring that down to even my own level. Pathological meaning diseased, so a diseased relationship with a mood-altering substance. And so um, it's not something where it's just kind of numbing or kind of soothing, but it's more where there's intense craving, um, there's negative consequences that come from it. Um, it's something that uh, a person just can't give up on their own accord necessarily. We'll get into kind of treatment and how to how to work through it because um, there is there is healing and hope in addiction. But um, another definition I want to give of this is um, any behavior that a person finds pleasure or relief in and craves, but suffers negative consequences and can't give up. Mm-hmm. And so kind of pass that to you, Tom. Um, yeah. So, I mean, uh, when I was working at a, a large parish in Denver, Mike, uh, mm-hmm. you know, I was the director of marriage and family life. So given that, I would have many people come and speak with me and they'd want to come and talk who are having marriage problems or relationship problems. And I'm no counselor, but I can certainly listen. Right. And I mm-hmm. referred them to many uh, psychologists and counselor. But it was not uncommon for someone to come in and share that they were struggling with some kind of, they might put it like sexual impurity. Uh, others would call it an addiction, but they're like saying, mm-hmm. you know, oftentimes it was either infidelity that they were mm-hmm. uh, engaged and they just couldn't say no, or uh, there was a porn addiction. Uh, and so they would come and they're, they're certainly they are now they're they're looking for for help. Right. So applying mm-hmm. what you said regarding addiction. Uh, applying this now to sexual addiction, it's that mm-hmm. it's that that want for something, inability to say no, uh, with negative consequences, but mm-hmm. in the in the realm of sexuality, right? Right, right. And then also there's we're looking at this more of on a uh, on a continuum now. Uh, Dr. Kevin Skinner out of California has a range from one to seven. You know, the seven typically we uh, this word addiction um, is very much misunderstood, where we're thinking of those people who are seven out of seven losing family, one foot in the gutter, like just uh, losing job, they've lost their job, you know, just um, totally addicted, where there is also that mid and lower range of once a month looking at it, um, you know, weekly, like it's starting to affect my mood, it's affecting my relationships, I'm starting to isolate myself more. And so um, you'll see this continuum. And I wanted to get a little more into the negative consequences, because what you'll see with addiction is obsessions. So you see four things here. One is obsessions, where there's kind of this planning and thinking around the substance, around porn. When can I hide it? How am I going to hide it? When am I going to get my next kind of fix? When's my wife going to be gone? When are my parents going to be gone if I'm a teenager? You know, and so there's this obsessing that kind of goes on. Compulsive use. So guys will talk about a bl- like these blinders just come on. And by the way, this is not just men anymore. I mean, we got 20% of Christian women now looking at this monthly. And so I definitely want to address that as well as sometimes they can feel like they're the hidden population and something's really wrong with them because they're looking at porn. But no, there's hope for women as well. But um, compulsive use, so these like blinders come on. It's like, how did all of a sudden I get upstairs and I'm in my closet and I got my phone and I'm just looking at porn? Like, where did this come from? Um, So compulsive use. Increase of tolerance. Um, So that's where the same amount of porn just doesn't quite do it. Or you need to start to get extra novelty or um, kind of an increase of usage, an increase of time spent to get the same effect. Mm -hmm. And then our last number four here, um, continued use despite negative consequences. So 
Um, I know that, you know, I'm a teenager. I know I'm messing up my relationship with my parents, but I keep using, or I'm starting to lose my wife here and I'm seeing it, but I keep using like, so you're starting to see these negative or like, I feel depression coming on and it's hard for me to get up and go to work, but I keep using like, so these negative consequences, but then you continue that continued use. So those are the four kind of staples of when you're starting to see this is addictive. I think that's going to be so helpful for you know our listeners. Mike, here's mm-hmm. something that we had at the parish, that people would mm-hmm. come and talk to me, and we started a support group on Saturday mornings, uh, and I, I asked a uh, you know various counselors if they would be willing just to come and sit and listen, and, uh, because I there the amount of shame that people had around mm. this area. I could mm. never put something in the bulletin. Hey, if you're struggling with sexual addiction, join us on Saturday mornings at 6 a.m. And you just couldn't. So it was a word of mouth sort of thing. But um, the amount of, uh, I think, real shame, and you talk about getting in the closet. I think many people may be struggling with this, but they would never feel comfortable, confident sharing it with anybody. And so they they have to to live in this lot with this sort of sort of lie, uh, you know, in this, uh, in the, you know, covering themselves. Um, Can you speak to that? Mm -hmm. You know, shame is insidious, Tom. Shame is the driver of this addiction. It's like the source and summit of this addiction. Um, If you see a, a cycle written out from a psychologist, like you'll see that shame is like at the beginning and at the end and it perpetuates the cycle Shame, you know, difference between guilt and shame. What is that? Um, you know, I, I tell my kids, hey, um, you know, if you break a window, um, I'm going to be mad at you and you did a bad behavior, right? Okay. But that doesn't mean you're a bad kid or that um, I hate you now or that I don't love you anymore, right? That you're not lovable. Like shame then gets to this next level of hitting um, the core of a person that they're not worthy, inadequate. And then um, Brene Brown talks about the the petri dish of shame, where um, you know, kind of this fungus that grows in secrecy, hiding, and judgment. And so we're hiding our porn and masturbation, these kind of behaviors. Um, it's a secret; nobody knows. No, nobody really knows about it. And then we're judging ourselves. What's wrong with me? I'm the only one who has this. Um, I'll never be lovable. I'll never find a woman. Just got a lot of powerful messages from the evil one. Um, I believe really come into play here. And so then what you're saying is, yeah, what, what breaks this? And, you know, my ideal is, yeah, eventually in the bulletin, you do put something that's kind of in your face and says, Hey, like you can break free from this, but how to break free from that vulnerability. Shame does not survive in the light. Shame does not survive with good conversation and with openness. And so um, at the Chancery downtown where the Center for Healing is, my group practice, I have three partners, the four of us um, really working together to help couples, to help teens, to help families with this area, but also in the other, other areas of mental health. But we have a group going, the My House, the My House um, Initiative, um, where, um, where once a week we have an accountability group. And we just have spread that, especially through the confessionals where priests have cards that they hand out to men and women who are struggling with this. I like what you said about putting something in the bulletin where people may not, you know, uh, a man or a woman who may not want to say, hey, honey, I'm going, you know, especially if it's, a, if it's something they've not shared, that they're like, oh, yeah, I'm, yeah, I'm going to go to the sexual addiction 
group, you know, that, okay, I, I can understand they want to, you know, uh, they're c- going through this process of, of um, accepting and dealing it or sharing, confessing it. Um, but the idea of putting it in the bulletin so that people can see like, okay, yeah, there is help for you. Uh, right. That is something that all of our, our listeners could do, you know, sharing with these people, there's right. hope and there's a place you can go to find, you know, uh, healing and freedom. So let me ask you this. Um, how often, really, Mike, I mean, how often are people dealing with some, you know, mm-hmm. um, sexual addiction? Is it really as bad as, you know, uh, you know, or is, is it sensationalized or is it really as bad as people say? Mm. You know, I have stats from Covenant Eyes. Covenant Eyes is a, um, is a website and then a, um, it also has uh, software, filtering, accountability software you can put on your phone, laptop, computer, iPad. Um, but yeah, you got, you got men between ages of 18 and 30, um, you got 80% of men looking at porn once a month. Um, you got 63% of them looking at it several times a week. Um, you have 76% of women, 18 to 30 viewing porn at least once a month. I see married men are at about, <clears throat> excuse me, are at about 70, 70% once a month. And so you got these high numbers going on and that's without Gen Z. So Generation Z, which is um, basically the the Internet generation now up and coming who basically were born with devices in their hands. Um, They haven't even reached full maturity yet. And they're growing up with the Internet in their hands. You know, so when you say 70 percent, you're you're talking the general populace. Right. That's out there. Right. Yeah. 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 That's not just uh, Christian. That's through what's uh, a survey conducted from by the Barna Group in the U.S. in 2014. And so, but that's not even getting into teens. So yeah, I remember a stat where teens were the highest consumers of pornography. That leads me into, I think, something that youth ministers and um, I'll just stick with youth ministers who, uh, that really, they really need to be aware of this, but also sexting um, and also hiding their behaviors. 2012 study said 71% of teens have done something to hide what they do online from their parents. So this includes clearing browsing history, minimizing a browser when they're in view, deleting inappropriate videos, lying about behavior, et cetera. That list kind of goes on and on with hiding. Remember what that has to do? It has to do with shame, right? So they're perpetuating their shame with this. 32% of teens admit to intentionally accessing nude or pornographic content online. Of these, 43% do on a weekly basis. Only 12% of parents knew their teens were accessing pornography. And so... Um, these numbers, that's 2004, that's 2012. Um, I would assume that has gone up by quite a bit with the average age of a kiddo getting a phone around 11, 10 or so. So basically these teens have kind of a loaded weapon in their hands and then you look at sexting. And so sexting is, is one of the most powerful, uh, parts of this. I don't know, keep this analogy going of this weapon where Marco Polo, Snapchat, that's where kiddos are trading these things like baseball cards. Like I've been into high schools and they talk about, yeah, hey, I'll trade this nude pick for for your homework. Or like there there is just this kind of insidious dehumanizing of the woman going on here. And the numbers are, are definitely growing with that. Um, let's see, 4% of 12 year olds have sent a sext, getting up to 19% of 18, 24 year olds have sent a sext sent a sext. And so once we're, we're the, once kiddos are around 20, once they're in that young adult range, about a fifth of the population have sent one. And then the receiving end um, actually goes up where about 20% of 16 year olds have received one, 30% of 17 year olds, 
Um, 21% of 14 to 24-year-olds have received a sex. So sexting, I believe, is off the charts right now. And um, it is getting hard to go in to talk to schools, like to talk to these teens when their parents aren't really doing anything about it. Because we could talk till we're blue in the face. But if Covenant Eyes or some sort of safe search get, isn't getting put on their phones, um, then it's going to be hard to combat this thing. It's so... In, I mean, incredible, not in, in a positive way, but it, it's, I mean, it's mind blowing that these are the numbers. And I think, you know, it, it's so easy to fall into, it's like a defeatist mentality of like, this thing is too big to beat that, yeah. you know, the church has such a, it's not like we've got a super well-respected voice in the culture and, um, you know, face it, every Catholic in the United States is probably more influenced in many ways by the culture than by anything that the the church teaches about the human person or about sexual integrity. Yeah. So, mm-hmm. I, you know, kind of, I guess, um, you know, how do, how do we move towards a tone of hope mm-hmm. and healing as opposed to a, um, no, I, I don't want to say finger wagging, but because that's, that's not you know, uh, clearly that's not kind of where you're coming from. Mm-hmm. Um, but I've witnessed at a lot of different youth conferences or even uh, I was a teacher at an all boys high school um, that this was just such a, hey, we need to we need to call you out. We need to we need to call this out. Yeah. And there it, it was almost more of an emphasis on a, hey, you know, we're here are the stats and, and we know you're you, you mm-hmm. fall into these stats. And you know, I saw you go into the bathroom with your phone and and, and almost like a Accusatory. because we want to bring this to light yeah there's this almost like I don't want to say witch hunt but um, maybe there's like a misguided uh, emphasis on, on bringing things to light without the emphasis on the healing that can happen once it is brought to the light and the hope that that mm-hmm. is there you know yeah eventually I kind of want to get into how a youth minister can respond should respond to a kiddo, kiddo when, when, um, when this is brought to the light. But yeah, there is, um, there's tailored researched treatment to help kids with this, to help married couples, to help men, to help women. And, uh, I believe there are a lot of pockets being created, um, in the United States to help all these different populations. And, I see it growing. It's kind of a small band that is that is present, but uh, there's a lot of hope with this. This is far from over. And yeah, Tom, what do you think? No, Mike, um, it, it is far from over. And I, I want building on Maurice's question. Mm-hmm. As a high school teacher, what I found is like I, I just spoke to a group of of parents um, a couple weeks ago, and I'm speaking again um, at the end of the month to. Um, another group of parents at a school about about these issues and the parents sometimes the moms are totally frightened the thought they're shocked and frightened that this might be their son that's doing this Mm. and i i I understand i I concur with what you're saying marisa that okay we can get an accuser hey we know you're doing this so like let's just talk about it every kid's gonna like shut up if you like from that kind of tone yeah yeah shut down and so i guess what i would like you to answer is this Help us to understand, okay, for our listeners, and because maybe the youth minister can help parents to understand this, or whoever, or even themselves, or even help the teen to understand what's going on in the brain. 
Mm. What's going on in the chemicals of our body? What's happening with the adrenaline, which then moves, you know, to the, uh, you know, the the serotonin and to the oxytocin and, and all of these things, and not let alone even the dopamine that's happening. But maybe right. you can just address, help us to understand, like, why, you know, when the mom's saying, how could my son be doing this? Really, what's happening? Why are we hardwired for this urge right. to merge? Why are right. we hardwired for this sexual intimacy? And then how does it go awry? Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. And actually, I like how you started that. We're hardwired for sexual intimacy. I want to start with health with the brain. I think too many times um, speakers and uh, just the brain science focuses on addiction and dopamine is bad and like this kind of negative view of the brain and what's happening with addiction. But what about starting from health, you know? Yes. So looking, you know, not getting graphic at all, but looking at a man and a woman married coming together in the sacrament of marriage for this, you know, for, for sexual union, what you have going on is, yes, dopamine rushes, right? That is the the primer. That's the neurotransmitter that's goal-driven, uh, that, um, uh, that really uh, correlates to survival um, in our brain where like it helps us remember where water is, where the fridge is, where food is. Like it doesn't just have to do with sex. Um, it has to do with craving that cheeseburger, you know? Um, and so dopamine, rush of dopamine. Um, for the men, you have that rush of testosterone. Yes, adrenaline is present there as well. Uh, for women, estrogen, which is more of like a longing hormone uh, where um, testosterone is more of this driving. So you see God's creation in there kind of for the pursuit and the luring in and the um, and that kind of dynamic. Then the tension comes where serotonin plummets, right? So that's where the tension is. Dopamine's high, serotonin is low, okay? Um, couple comes together, orgasm happens, serotonin comes back up, dopamine still lingers. Now the God imprint in our brain is oxytocin. Oxytocin then floods the brain of both the man and the woman, and that is the cuddle hormone. That's the one that creates warm feelings. It creates trust. Um, trust is actually more produced in the foreplay and not so much, excuse me, it's more produced in the afterplay and not as much in the foreplay. And so oxytocin then, the powerful part as well, is that it curbs the effect of dopamine. So we have a natural mm. neurotransmitter in our brain that calms dopamine so that we um, we are using our sexuality for lovemaking and not just for a purpose-driven usefulness to get off, like in pornography. Um, and so a few other neurotransmitters there, you have vasopressin for men, which is, I call it the faithful, um, the faithfulness neurotransmitter. It literally helps men um, just focus in on their wife. And they've done studies where like when they're in a crowd, men will be scanning for their wives and not for anybody else. And so vasopressin is a very powerful neurotransmitter for men um, to hone in and be protective of their spouse and children and family. Uh, you also have uh, natural opioids that calm pain, relieve stress. And so those are very much present as well, especially after orgasm. And so if you look at this health perspective, like you have so many neurotransmitters going on here and that fullness of God's design is is powerful is to create that bond and it's within the sacrament. And then there's a spiritual angle that Tom, you could speak to more, but um, I really wanted to start with health. 
Well, so, so given that, that, I think that's great. You're right. As we said, we're hardwired for intimacy. And, the, you know, I always say to students, the fact that you have the urge to merge does not mean something went wrong. It means something went right. Perhaps then you have someone who's addicted to porn and they're looking at it and they get this dopamine rush, right? And along with everything else that goes into it, perhaps if there is no oxytocin release through this process, you're not uh, you know, you're, you're, you you have the dopamine rush, but there is no connectedness. Or if there is, then you're connecting yourself to some sort of false right. image and artificial. Right. Would that be yeah. accurate? Right, exactly. Yeah, there's less um, less oxytocin present with porn and, and masturbation by far. Um, and I did read that there is uh, vasopressin present, but then you're bonding, you're getting protective around the novelty and the images of pixels in the screen, you know. And so... Um, so yeah, what's, what's going wrong here is, is, uh, the craving for dopamine and dopamine becoming centered in, in the brain. Um, I like to compare the brain, um, to flushing the toilet. What happens when you flush a toilet and then when it's filling up half and it's halfway and you try to flush it again and again yeah. and again, right? It, exactly. <laughs> you don't get that same flush, right? You see what I'm saying there? So what happens with dopamine, continued exposure to porn, especially for long periods of time, it releases surge after surge of dopamine, giving the brain an unnatural high. And then the brain eventually fatigues. So that's kind of where I'm getting to the toilet analogy, is where it is fatiguing. It can't keep up with the rush that's going on. It limits the release of dopamine, leaving the viewer wanting more, but unable to reach that level of satisfaction. And so dopamine, what it's starting to do without the oxytocin is it colonizes. Like it's like a weed. It just keeps growing, but then it kills off neurons. And you'll see brain scans where the prefrontal cortex, like it's fallen asleep. It's not dead, but it's like when you sit cross-legged for a long time and then your leg falls asleep. It's like that is going on. And there's other regions of the brain too where it's clear that it's darker. It's uh, They can compare it to, I believe, as a heroin addict to what's happening with certain parts of the brain where it's literally kind of shutting down atrophying is another word for that and so that's what's happening with the with dopamine uh, colonizing in the brain and you eventually start to get hardwired not just for your uh, beautiful spouse um, but you're starting to get hardwired to all these on-ramps of novelty and clicks and the next rush and basically, you're chasing that first high. You're chasing the first flush, if you would. And you're never going to get back to that. I, I have a question kind of dealing with that. You know, we talk about addiction to different substances. And people talk about how some people are alcoholics, while other people can use alcohol in moderation without having, mm-hmm. you know, succumbing to the kind of the, the disease of alcoholism. Um, it's so common right now for people to just say, oh, like, porn looking at porn it's it's natural it is normal it's it's evidence of a healthy sexual of things working um it's healthy release stress relief whatever there's so many um voices from the secular world and and even sometimes within the christian world of people really arguing that this is this is fine this is healthy um what would you say to a teen that says, you know, I'm not addicted or, or an adult. I'm not addicted. Like, this is just like you have a beer once a week. I, you're not an alcoholic. You know, I, I look at porn mm-hmm. once a week. I'm, yeah. I'm not a porn addict. Yeah, that's a great question. That's a, that's a tough one to answer, especially for teens, you know, 
that's a good argument. Um, there's a lot of, Tom, you could probably speak to the logical fallacies in that maybe. But I know this is like a kind of a narrowed population, but in my in my experience, and definitely my partner, Chris, uh, at the Center for Healing, we've never seen someone come into our office who's not addicted, basically, who's using it regularly and it's causing problems in their life. Now, yes, I know that's why they're coming to counseling, but I so far I haven't seen uh, the casual user, if you would, without negative consequences. Does that make sense? Yeah, so you would compare this more to something like meth than to alcohol. Ah, good point. Yes. There you go. I like that argument. Yeah. Or heroin. Yeah. Something that's uh, much more powerful than alcohol. And then then I think you have to take, I'd like you to speak to this, Tom, more, but you have to take the direction towards the human person. There's a big difference between um, pornography and taking a drink of alcohol, you know, with watching the rawness of it, the explicit videos that um, there's there's increasing numbers that it's violent um, the ages are decreasing where there's clearly minors in this. It's linked to sex trafficking. Like we're talking about the dignity of the human person being um, being torn apart with pornography. There's links to um, young boys believing in the rape myth, basically, where they are saying, hey, actually, a girl really wants to be raped. Like she actually likes it. Um, it's linked to violent behaviors. Um, and so. Yeah, to that kiddo, that's uh, to that teen who would just kind of be who's indifferent and acting like he's kind of a big shot and doesn't really care. I'm just casually using it. Um, it's going to get you at some point. That's really helpful, Mike. Thanks for clarifying with that. And um, I really appreciate um, kind of giving this insight into how the brain works and how um, kind of how how addiction is is on a spectrum and that they're. Um, maybe we need to change our understanding of, of what porn addiction or sexual addiction looks like um, in in the life of those that suffer from it. Um, so let's start. We're gonna we're gonna kind of go through three categories. So our first category, we're gonna speak to those who are working with youth, whether that be youth ministers or um, that be people on, on college campuses or even just parents. So. Mike, what would be some advice that you have um, for those working with young people um, who want to, to help um, help those young people kind of move forward and find healing uh, in the area of sexuality? I think it's important with the youth um, to understand that this happened to them, that a lot of times that this is accidental. One of the four A's of porn, um, anonymous, affordable, Accidental, so anonymous, affordable, accidental. There's a fourth A. I'll think of it eventually. Um, but that, yeah, it is accidental where some kid on the bus is showing, showing, you know, Johnny his phone where there's porn on it. Or um, you're on ESPN and at the end of, uh, at the bottom of the app, um, while you're scrolling, there's a good looking lady and you start to click and you go into the vortex of porn eventually, you know, like. Empathy is so important for a kiddo. I'm sorry this has happened to you, you know, sitting with them in that for a minute, helping them see like, actually, this sought you out. This is not your fault. And I'm sorry you have access to that. And that's especially a response that's needed from the parents. But first of all, just sitting in that space for the youth minister, for anyone working with the youth. Um, I love Father Sean's story of asking a kiddo, hey, 
you're on your iPad, you're looking at porn, and Jesus walks in, what would happen? Most of the time, a kiddo or an adult is going to say, he'd be pissed, he would He'd be angry. He would just walk out of the room. He'd slam the door. He'd scoff at me. He'd point at the cross and say, man, you're driving another nail into my hand. A lot of times this God image that we grow up with is just false. It's, it's incorrect. And what Jesus would do is he'd grab the laptop and he'd throw it on the ground. And he'd be angry at porn, at the sin and then he'd put his hand on the kiddo's shoulder and turn to him and say, hey, I'm sorry this happened to you. And I love you, and I'll never abandon you. And then just repeating that, I'm sorry this happened to you. I love you. And then, yes, go sin no more. Hey, little Johnny, like, you need some help now. You probably need to tell your parents. We need to hold you accountable now, you know. But first of all, I'm sorry this happened to you. And so I just just laying that on is very is very important uh, for the first and ongoing exposures if they have a relapse um, to help them uh, to help them understand their dignity because the shame is so high with this. That's a really powerful image of, of Christ um, stepping in to that moment and being the protector and uh, and and the healer. And I think it's so. It positions, you know, if that's if that's what a parent begins to do, when a parent says, "Okay, you know, we're going to get covenant eyes," it doesn't feel like a punishment, you know. Now, if you're saying, "I'm sorry, this happened to you," and there is a threat out there um, that's working against you, you know, now I want to help you by trying to protect you from that, and it becomes less a, a, sl- a slap on the wrist or an area of shame. And, and it kind of, to me, it, it seems like it totally sh- changes, it shifts the, the tone of the conversation. Um, that's awesome. Do you have any other tips that you want to share? Yeah. So, um, you know, then it's, it's about getting the resources. It's about, um, it's about, it's about getting them plugged in with their parents and, and helping them disclose this to their parents. Hopefully their parents are safe and are just kind of knowledgeable, or this is an area to evangelize for the youth minister, for whoever's working with youth, to say, hey, go to cmgconnect.com, I think it is, Catholic Mutual Group Connection, and there's a powerful 20-minute video about how to handle this, um, how to move forward with empathy, with accountability, with covenant eyes, with just all these different kind of areas of, of uh, getting the kiddo uh, connected and plugged in. And so the first line of defense yeah, has to be helping them get the courage to tell their parents and to talk to them and holding them accountable so that they actually follow through with that. Um, and then after that line of defense, you can be um, a sort of accountability partner where I think you can be on their Covenant Eyes accountability list where you're getting, getting the weekly email. Um, you can start to look up websites and go through it with them, like Fight the New Drug, uh, again, Covenant Eyes, um, thepornaffect.com, Matt Frad's website, um, chastityproject.com or org. And so it's about getting them plugged in and especially then to, hopefully they're in a youth group and getting them plugged in the community because odds are they might be kind of alone with this thing, possibly, where... um, they don't feel like they have a lot of friends. They feel isolated. They've been isolating themselves. And so how do we plug them in to start to get good girls as friends, to get good um, 
just get good friendship uh, in general. And so I think that's the next move for those who are who are working with the youth. So accountability and uh, um, uh, giving them a sense of community or something that's mm-hmm. that's meaningful beyond this, right? Mm-hmm. That's right. that's what I'm hearing loud and clear. Right. Um, that's um, that's great. That's great, Mike. Great practical advice. Let's turn the corner then. Um, we were talking about youth. What about now for um, adults? And I, I want something came to my mind—an anecdotal story from my aunt, my side. But when I was working with couples uh, in the parish, at least half of the time, when there was a sexual problem in the relationship, like infidelity or that kind of thing. It was the woman, not the man. So we think it's a man who's always being unfaithful. And so I know we've been talking, we've been focusing a lot about porn, but there, uh, there is maybe emotional infidelity and different things. It's you know, it's different, but there is sort of a uh, an addictive component to this as well, right? So what I would see is, you know, when there was certainly the, it was men who were typically struggling with porn, but with infidelity, oftentimes it was the woman who was seeking some kind of um, emotional satisfaction or you know and she maybe she started using someone you know for to fill this emotional tank at the expense of another person which then led to some sort of extramarital affair or that sort of thing so i know i'm i know i'm opening it up beyond just a little bit porn but uh when we're we're struck when we're working with people in marriage preparation or marriage or you know either they're struggling with um you know, some kind of sexual addiction or or just a problem right how do we how do we help them mm-hmm yeah. Great question. Yeah, that opens up the, the scope a little bit. And it's good because it, it has to do with sexual brokenness, you know, and um, that needs cl- immediate clinical intervention when um, when someone has breached the relationship with some sort of affair or outside um, online chatting or or yeah, when it then crosses the flesh line. Um, definitely. Um, but my main point is that, yeah, it just it needs clinical um, clinical intervention to start to work through it because a disclosure is needed. The, the man, so if we're going with your example, Tom, of this emotional infidelity by the wife, um, the man needs disclosure. He doesn't know what's up or down right now. So he needs to know, Hey, has this crossed the flesh line? What kind of things did you say? You know, he doesn't need every single little detail. That's not helpful, but that's where you need uh, someone who's well-versed in this to help to navigate like, your husband needs to know like where you went and how how you handled this and about the lying about there's a phenomenon called gaslighting like he needs you to take ownership and to uh, really disclose what has happened here and that's got to be the first piece and uh, that's where a, a clinical therapist really comes into play yeah i think knowing when to pass them off is so critical mm-hmm. uh, in, in realizing I, I you know as a uh, as a, as a catechist, as a marriage and family director or minister or whatever you want to call me at a parish, you know, many people would come in to talk, you know, who were, they were struggling with masturbation. They're struggling with porn. Uh, uh, you know, uh, he was considering an affair. They had an affair or, you know, whoever it was, yeah. all of these things, um, knowing how to, and when to pass them over to somebody was critical and, and realizing I, you know, I, I, I can, I can help them. I can certainly help them, but I need to know yeah. when I end and when, you know, cause I can talk to them about spiritual matters, but when they really do need someone who, who is a professional. And I, I think that's, I'm glad that you said that. 
Mike, what would you say, you know, as we finish up the podcast, there are going to be listeners who um, you know, are listening to this and saying, you know, I, I'm not, I can't work with teens on this. I can't work with couples on this because my deepest, darkest secret is that I need to work on this with myself. So if you're struggling with this, I want you to go back to that image that I talked about earlier with you being in the midst of this sin and Jesus walking in and seeing this. Um, how do you feel with Jesus being there? Um, how do you see him move? What is your kind of God image? And really kind of taking that to prayer and wrestling with that and starting at that space. Because I think sometimes us as Catholics, we struggle with vulnerability. We struggle with going, we, we go to mass on Sundays, we look pretty, we go to confession and um, that is good. Those things are very good. And the source and summit is the Eucharist confession. We need that grace. But then there's more, there can be more to it than that, where, um, where Jesus really wants to enter into us at a heart-to-heart level in the midst of our sin and to put it in front of him and let him take that tablet, let him um, pull you close to him and tell you how much he loves you and wants to be close to you and wants to break this with you. Um, I think that is a first step um, spiritually of really uh, being vulnerable with Jesus and learning how to how to start that in your own prayer life with your own sin. Uh, the second thing is, who can you tell? Like, who is the first person, second person, you know, somebody who you're really going to um, um, be vulnerable with and talk to about this, um, whether it's a best friend, whether it's your wife um, and you need to admit to this or it's your husband, um, whether it's your um, pastor, your priest, um, who is it that you can trust and lay, lay this out to really entrust it, entrust it to them. Um, and then, yeah, it's about, it's about the work. Are you going to, um, just to kind of challenge you a little bit, are you going to take the necessary steps of, um, covenant eyes of breaking through some denial of getting some literature of going to some of these, websites daily to just fill yourself up with um, understanding the clinical, the spiritual side of it? Um, Are you going to, you know, try to work on increasing that motivation? Um, Are you going to start to set boundaries? I think there's an exercise called uh, the three circles. Um, It's like a target and the middle of the target are the unhealthy, basically mortal sins. The next level in the target, like the yellow area, has to do with um, yellow flag behaviors that can lead to the acting out behaviors. So are you going to start to work on, hey, I, I can't have three hours of screen time a day, or I shouldn't be going to YouTube, or right now I need to get a flip phone, you know, or I need to be going to bed with my wife, or as a teenager, I need to be handing in my phone at night and I need to go to sleep with the door open, right? So really getting to some of these boundaries and understanding the different levels that lead to the addiction. And then the outside circle is green, and it's the healthy behaviors that we all need to be doing regularly with um, our prayer life, with the Eucharist being, again, the source and summit, with regular regular confession, with um, connecting with friends, uh, healthy relationships, eating well, exercising. Like, what are those green light behaviors um, that 
tap into the areas of the human person that um, that block against sin, where all of a sudden sin becomes distasteful because um, I'm really connected with my wife. I have a best friend. I love the work that I'm doing, you know, um, to where these good things, these good, healthy things with their crosses are going on. And you start to find even joy maybe in some of your suffering. And so there is so much hope here and there is, um, there is help available definitely. And so call us at the center for healing, go to one of the, my house workshop for men. And so there is always hope. Thank you so much, Mike. That's a awesome note to end on that. There's so much out there. Um, that people can um, run to in order to help them against the, uh, beat this and um, and and to fully embrace the healing that Christ has in store and wants wants to provide. So I guess um, you know as as we end, where can where can our listeners find out more about the work that you do and some of these workshops and resources that you're talking about? Let's see, Center for Healing. So my practice, um, you can go to. CenterForHealingKC.org, or you can go to CatholicTherapist.com backslash Chacho, C-I-A-C-C-I-O, and you can look look at our practice and more of uh, what it's about. We do phone counseling, and so we're definitely available for that. Um, the workshops, yes, um, the workshops, uh, we um, unfortunately only have two this year, but um, that's with Father Sean Kilcauley, with Dr. Todd Bowman, myself, and Sam Meyer. And you can go to myhousekansas.org and look into it, look at the landing page, the promo video, and sign up there if you want to. Wives, definitely you're kind of a great driving force uh, to get your husband to go on this workshop. And so I definitely um, want to give you this tool to give you some leverage to uh, to help your husbands and to give them a push because they need that push through through some of this denial that goes on and defensiveness. Um, those are some of my local resources um, that can be used, along with just the My House initiative in general. Um, that uh, uh, not just, you know, women can call that, wives. If you get that card in the confessional around the Kansas City area, give us a call. It's a confidential hotline, and we can uh, set up a free assessment and get you plugged into a group. Wives, we can get you plugged into what's called a betrayal trauma group. And so um, the resources are starting to really compound and uh, and are available. And to our listeners, we will include those links in the show notes. So uh, if you can't <laughs> remember and write them all down right now, you can find them um, at ascensionpress.com. Um, find our podcast page and um, find the episode, uh, find this particular episode's show notes, and, and all of those notes will be there. So um, hopefully that will that will provide you with um, some really good resources to use yourself and, and to also pass along to the people that you're working with. Um, at your parishes um, and just in your in your Catholic communities in general. So thank you so much, Mike, for, for taking this time with us. We're just so grateful for the insights that you've shared and the advice and um, and just helping us better understand this um, and, and then what we can do. Yeah. So. yeah, you're welcome, and thank you for having me. Really appreciate it. Our pleasure. Tom, thank you so much for, for connecting us with Mike. And um, you know, he's once your student, and now we are his students. So it's kind of funny how that goes. You're doing good work, Mike. Thanks, Tom. Wonderful. Well, 
to all of our listeners, if you have questions on this topic, um, we will have Mike back on the show. So please write to us with any questions that you have for Mike um, that you'd like to ask as a follow-up to anything that we addressed in this episode. So you can reach us at Ascension Roundtable at ascensionpress.com. Thanks so much, and we are praying for you all. Peace.